This is Quiet Revolutionaries, a podcast based on my book of the same name about a little-known group of feminist activists in the mid-20th century and how they helped to shape the idea of equal partnership in relationships. I'm Dr Sharon Thompson, a law lecturer at Cardiff University, where over the course of several years I decided to take a different look at how law came to be as we know it. In this podcast series, I explore the intriguing and sometimes shocking story of the Married Women's Association. I'll be going back in history to uncover how this group's failed attempts at reform created unexpected ripples that connect the fundamental principles of equality today. This is Episode 7. Until April 2022, the Divorce Reform Act 1969 dictated the law of divorce in England and Wales. We've been used to this law of divorce for 50 years, and so it's easy to assume that it passed with little opposition, especially when it liberalised divorce in many positive ways and has been part of family law orthodoxy for so long now. But in May 1969, only months before the Divorce Reform Act was passed, the Sunday Times published the headline, Divorce Reform Faces Death on a Friday. The MP Leo Absey, a leading advocate of the Act, wrote in his memoirs that it was a real wonder that the divorce bill ever reached the statute book at all because of the grievances levied against it by Edith Summerskill. Absey's frustration in his memoirs is palpable. No one was more successful in delaying its passage and in arousing hostility to its objectives than Summerskill. In this seventh episode, I will explore how the Married Women's Association and Edith Summerskill were powerful forces in delaying the divorce law family lawyers are now so familiar with. And this point's crucial to take note of because this law was delayed because there was very little the court could do at that time to help wives financially on relationship breakdown. The point is, many wives faced destitution. Take this account, for example, from a Married Women's Association member writing for help. I am a terrified elderly lady of 67 years. My husband, now 70, left me some years ago for someone younger. On several occasions he's returned to me but has gone back to the other woman when she's called him. He is, of course, now retired on pension. He has no other means nor capital. To provide for the other woman, he now wishes to divorce me under the Divorce Reform Act 1969 so that the widow's pension will go to her. His admitted sole reason for seeking a divorce. I make ends meet by working in a full-time job, not well paid because I'm untrained and started late when I was left alone. It has no pension uh, and in due time, because of my age, my employers will put me out to grass. When that time comes, the widow's pension will pay my ever-rising local rates and provide warmth and necessities. Without it, I must give up my home and I'm terrified at the prospect of being without a roof when I shall need it most. To have this linchpin abruptly removed as it will be by the Divorce Reform Act, is surely against all justice for the elderly wife. 
We are now too old to make alternative plans. And without these pensions, sufficient means to keep our homes will vanish. The conventional story tells us that the people who supported divorce reform hadn't forgotten about the plight of deserted wives like this woman. And so the government delayed reform so that the financial consequences of divorce could then be addressed too. Yet, even in the retelling of this story now, you might be thinking that the gaps are glaring. Why wait until the 11th hour to delay divorce reform to look at its financial consequences? Is it accurate to attribute the abrupt curtailing of the divorce bill at the 11th hour solely to those in government? Or is it likely that there were other forces at work? Well, to answer this, we need to look closely at what the Married Women's Association did. First was Ada Summerskill's effective propaganda. She called the divorce reform a Casanova's charter because a wife could be deserted and divorced without her consent while having no way of getting an effective financial remedy to ensure she wasn't left in a position of poverty. This soundbite Casanova's charter became an effective tool in raising awareness about the potential repercussions of the Divorce Act. It was also clearly a clever and formidable force in pressurising the government to change course. Legislation on financial provision was introduced alongside legislation on divorce, because the economic consequences for deserted wives was recognised as being a genuine problem in need of reform. But the Married Women's Association wasn't just involved in propaganda. In fact, what isn't well known is the influence the association had and what went on in Parliament. One of the MPs who was vocal about the issue of women's economic vulnerability in divorce was Edward Bishop. In 1969, he argued in Parliament that many women were now gainfully employed outside the home, but would still be in an economically vulnerable position if they divorced. It is difficult to prove where a wife does not work outside the home, but works in the house, caring for the family and doing the many jobs which a wife and mother must do, what contributions she has made, and what repayments she can get when the marriage goes on the rocks. Many wives earn money outside to contribute towards holidays, clothing and school affairs. This is not easy to prove. So, Bishop went on to conclude, the wife, whether she works in the home or outside, is at a great disadvantage. While this had been a growing problem, of course, throughout the history of the Married Women's Association, now the prospect of wives being deserted under a new divorce law with insufficient protection made reforming the issue of married women's property rights even more imperative. Edward Bishop, with the support of Edith Summerskill, wanted to do something about this. He introduced a private member's bill called the Matrimonial Property Bill, and this bill would require equitable division of jointly owned matrimonial property by the court. So basically, certain assets were to be divided equally. Many lawyers, both academic lawyers and practising lawyers, criticised this bill. It was defective in lots of ways. It had some unintended consequences which actually could have left a divorced wife even worse off. 
For example, one of the problems with the bill was that it applied only to property acquired during the marriage. And that meant that if the matrimonial home had been purchased with the husband's money that he'd earned before the marriage, the wife wouldn't receive half of the value of the house. She'd be entitled only to half of the increase in value of the home during the marriage. So in that example, if the husband had purchased the home for £50,000 before the marriage with his own money, and by the time the couple were getting divorced, the home was worth £70,000, the wife wouldn't get £35,000, she would only get ten. She would only get half of the amount by which the house had increased in value. So from that perspective, the bill could therefore have entrenched spousal inequality. Instead of promoting its goal of furnishing married women with rights beyond maintenance. In summary, then, yes, it was a badly drafted bill, but it was very clever in other ways. It was strategic. It forced the government to pay attention to the financial consequences of divorce. And Edward Bishop himself admitted that he'd introduced it to slow down the progress that the divorce bill was making at the time. And it worked. The bill received widespread public support. A lesser known aspect of the bill is that it originated from discussions with the Married Women's Association about the matter of joint ownership of the matrimonial home. The association had drafted its own matrimonial property bill. It sought to give married women an interest in the home equal to that of their husbands, even when the property was in his sole name, avoiding the example that we looked at previously. When Edward Bishop came third in the private member's ballot, he agreed to sponsor their bill. The Married Women's Association reported this news in its October 1968 bulletin, asking association members to write it once to their MP. However, the bill had been redrafted when it came up for debate in the Commons and went further than the original terms of the bill. Instead, it provided for equal division of all property acquired during the marriage, excluding property owned at the time of the marriage or obtained through gift or inheritance. And as I've already mentioned, this bill was defective. Behind the scenes, the Law Commission and the Lord Chancellor's Office were alarmed by the prospect of the Bishop Bill becoming law, as in their view it was so poorly drafted it was incurably bad. So alarmed, in fact, that the Law Commission, which is a non-political independent body, joined forces with the Lord Chancellor Gerald Gardner to squash the bill. Law Commission Chair Leslie Scarman wrote to Gardner in 1968 saying, I am taken the unusual course of writing to you about this myself, because I believe that this bill should not receive a second reading. And in his notes, Scarman was clearly concerned there was a strong chance the bill could pass. Superficially, the bill is attractive. And the fact that its passage would remove a great deal of opposition from the women's lobby to the divorce reform bill may tempt supporters of the latter bill to support the former. But on careful consideration, the bill is clearly unsound and ill thought out in many basic respects. So at the Law Commission, Scarman was worried that the supporters of the divorce reform bill would effectively view the Bishop bill as a way of putting an end to the Casanova's charter charge that had been levied so effectively by Edith Summerskill and her supporters to hinder the progress of divorce reform. Attempts by the government to kill the bill were later described by Law Commissioner L.C.B. Gower as ham-fisted. 
A three-line whip issued to ministers backfired when MPs became very upset. When the whip was overturned, the Bishop Bill was able to have its second reading debate. The strategy agreed by the Law Commission and the government was not to offer any drafting assistance to Bishop, to appear sympathetic to the underlying purpose of the bill, and not to allow any minister to say or imply that the Law Commission want the bill killed. Following this, the Commission informed the Law Chancellor's Office that it would work on alternative reform that could achieve what appeared to be the basic objectives of the Bishop Bill, but on very different terms. So, in other words, the strategy that the Law Commission and the government agreed to pursue together was to appear publicly to be really supportive of the bill, but not to give any actual assistance to the bill. They didn't want the word to get out that actually they wanted this bill to be squashed. And these tactics of the Law Commission and the government worked. Ultimately, Edward Bishop withdrew his bill and it never became law. After it successfully passed its second reading in the House of Commons, Bishop made a deal with the government, agreeing that if the Law Commission could draft a better bill, the government would give it time and it would pass. As a result, while the Bishop Bill was clearly flawed, it proved to be a suitable delaying tactic to ensure divorce reform wasn't passed without reforming divorce's financial consequences as well. The Commission had said that it did have great hopes of proposing reform of financial provision in future session of Parliament. But without this deal for the Bishop Bill to be withdrawn, which put pressure on the Law Commission to come up with an alternative, Scarman at the Law Commission actually later admitted to the MP Leo Absey in private that he was certain that the reform they came up with wouldn't have happened when it did. Textbook histories of divorce fail to acknowledge this crucial role played by the Bishop Bill in reforming financial remedies. It's easy to dismiss a bill that's riddled with defects, with it being called the most hopeless piece of drafting that I've ever seen by the government and the Law Commission saying that it would have been an embarrassing addition to our statute law. But this hidden history shows that poorly drafted, unsuccessful reform can be significant, for it can impel the government and the Law Commission to act. Correspondence between Edward Bishop and Edith Summerskill shows their collaboration in these reform efforts, and of Edward Bishop's feelings about his strategic compromise with the government. In the proceedings in the House, discussion was curtailed voluntarily in order to get the bill through, and also to make it possible for other bills to be discussed and passed in the same sitting. Hence, much of what could and should have been said was left unsaid. We had no alternative but to cooperate to get the bill through, and we should have been very worried had it not done so. However, it is certain that there will have to be amendments to it in the near future, and we will have to consider the form they should take. I think we can claim that had we not exerted the pressure we did, this bill would not have been introduced and passed in this Parliament. There's hardly need for me to say how much I have appreciated the immense amount of work which you and a few others have given, and I hope we can keep in touch to stimulate changes to the Act in the near future. Yours, Ted Bishop. Though the extent of Ada Summerskill's involvement with the Bishop Bill is unclear, her connection to it was widely publicised. In the Times, she was reported as saying that if the Bishop Bill were passed, 
she would drop her opposition to the divorce reform bill because the first wife would then have some financial protection. The reform that did pass giving wives some financial protection, which was called the Matrimonial Proceedings and Property Act 1970, was radical when compared to the lack of family law reform achieved in previous decades. Just to explain its broader legal context for a second, these 1970 family law reforms were consolidated in an act called the Matrimonial Causes Act 1973, and this still governs the law in England and Wales today. It still provides the legal framework for what happens to people's property and finances on divorce. And so it does deserve its status as a landmark moment. Yet this account of the backstage deals and trade-offs indicates how close England and Wales came to something much more radical, which was a new law of family property. Though it didn't pass, the Bishop Bill and the Married Women's Association's role in all of this has an important place within the history of the divorce reforms of the 1960s and 70s because it forced elites to include additional safeguards for married women's protection. And without this, the implementation of property reform and divorce would have been much more difficult. Matrimonial Proceedings and Property Act 1970 was viewed by the Married Women's Association as a step in the right direction because it appeared to endorse the value of work typically carried out by women. That is, the Act's discretionary guidance required the court to consider the quote, contributions made by each of the parties to the welfare of the family, including any contribution made by looking after the home or caring for the family. So it was recognising in law, in statute, women's unpaid work in the home. And this was hugely significant, especially when viewed through the history of what the Married Women's Association had been campaigning for for all those years. But it didn't rule out the need for further reform. The 1970 Act had changed the property consequences of divorce, but it hadn't changed the property consequences of marriage, which is what the Married Women's Association were trying to do. Perhaps the Law Commission summarised what the Married Women's Association wanted best. In effect, what women are saying, and with considerable male support, is we are no longer content with a system whereby a wife's rights in family assets depend on the whim of a husband or on the discretion of a judge. We demand definite property rights, not possible discretionary benefits. Possible discretionary benefits were what the 1970 Act provided, but it didn't deliver definite property rights. Before the Matrimonial Proceedings and Property Act 1970 was introduced, the Divorce Reform Act 1969 posed a threat to the economic stability and security of many married women. In the late 1960s, the work of Edith Summerskill in particular made the struggle and frequent destitution of these women visible in Parliament. The resistance of members of the Married Women's Association to divorce reform also reveals an important strategy. By blocking the passage of government-backed reform or by opposing a decision Parliament was in the middle of making, 
It was possible for the association to persuade the legislature to redefine family law proposals in feminist terms. The 1970 reforms might not have been introduced until a later date, were it not for the pressure of Edward Bishop's matrimonial property bill. Yet, because divorce reform ultimately passed, the significance of this feminist resistance is not acknowledged in mainstream accounts. Moreover, the matrimonial property bill is known as the Bishop Bill, as we've seen, and that means that its origins from within the Married Women's Association are hidden. In the next and final episode of this podcast, I'll consider the significance of this hidden impact in more detail and how the little-known impact of the Married Women's Association is in fact important to feminist history and to histories of law reform. For, as MP Lena Yeager, who was affiliated to the Married Women's Association, explained, Certainly it is true in the history of women's rights in Great Britain that progress has not been automatic, that if women, and a few good men, had not organised, campaigned and exhorted to the point, sometimes of boredom, about the vote or equal pay or wifely rights in the marital home, these things would not have descended upon us as the gentle dew from heaven. Thank you for listening to Quiet Revolutionaries, presented and written by me, Dr. Sharon Thompson, produced by Ed Townend and with voice acting by Lynn Hoare and Russell Sandberg. Special thanks to the Socio-Legal Studies Association for funding this project, the Women's Library, the National Archives and all of the great people who agreed to be interviewed about the Married Women's Association. For further information, visit marriedwomensassociation.co.uk where you can find photos of the people mentioned in this podcast and documents from the archives. My book, Quiet Revolutionaries, which includes a foreword written by Lady Hale, is out now.